Welcome to this podcast recorded for ESMO Open Cancer Horizons. My name is Teresa Amaral and I'm interviewing today Professor John Hannon on the topic Frequent Asked Questions about Immunotherapy in the Daily Clinical Practice. Dear Professor Hannon, thank you for taking your time to record this podcast for ESMO Open Cancer Horizons. You're welcome. So we will start with our first question. Currently, there is no consensus about immunotherapy duration. In your opinion, which factors need to be considered when determining immunotherapy duration? And also related to this question, if the patient is only slightly progressing, should we continue therapy and for how long? Thank you. Uh, this, this is a very important question that is on uh, the mind of, of, of many doctors uh, that, are, that are treating uh, patients with immunotherapy. So if you look at what data we have right now, there is not so much. So we know that patients, and we're talking now about uh, patients with metastatic melanoma that have a complete remission on immunotherapy or a very good response on immunotherapy, that you can negotiate with the patient to stop the treatment earlier than the two years that is normally uh, being given. If you look at the patients um, that have stopped earlier, not because of toxicity, but just because of a shared decision uh, between the doctor and the patient, then we see that, uh, especially the patients that have a complete remission, but also patients with a partial response, do fairly well. So the the follow-up time, of course, of these patients is still limited. So we don't know whether they have a very long duration of response, but as far as we can see now, many of these patients keep on responding so that response doesn't change in the period of of follow-up that we have right now. So they seem to be doing well. If you then, you know, go to another tumor type, uh, we see that that may be different there. So in in non-small lung cancer patients, uh, a trial was performed where patients were at some point randomized between stopping after one year when they had a response to immunotherapy or continuing. And then you can see even the patient that had a complete remission that they, uh, again, after a certain period of follow-up, had a recurrence or progressed on their disease. And it was very difficult to get them, again, responding to the same treatment. So there people feel that one year of, of, of anti-PD-1 treatment, non-small cell lung cancer, even in case of a complete remission, may be too short to stop treatment. But then again, the question comes, what would happen after two years? And in fact, we don't have any data on that. What we know from melanoma uh, is that patients that have finished two years of treatment with anti-PD-1, in this case, pembrolizumab or nivolumab treatment, and you look then at the follow-up of these, uh, uh, of these patients, how do they do? You can see that after, uh, let's say, a median follow-up of uh, uh, less than a year, these patients are still doing uh, really well. The majority, the vast majority, over 90% of the patients still have ongoing responses uh, uh, and are still alive uh, from their disease. So in other words, two years may be uh, for some patients uh, uh, certainly enough, but in melanoma uh, probably can, you can stop earlier. If you look at patients that have severe toxicity uh, based on immunotherapy uh, treatment and they have to stop the treatment, then we also see that, the, that a part of these patients are doing uh, really well despite the fact that they have to stop the treatment because of toxicity. This is especially true also for the combination of epilimumab and nivolumab, where the vast majority of patients that had to stop the treatment because of severe toxicity continued to respond in the, over the period of time that they were followed. You have to realize that all of this follow-up is still quite short. The only difference is in patients 
and again, this is for metastatic melanoma, that have received treatment with epilimumab only. So there the follow-up time is much, much longer uh, because uh, uh, epilimumab was introduced much earlier than the anti-PD-1 or anti-PD-1 drugs. So in that case, if patients are still alive at three years after treatment uh, with epilimumab, chances that they will die from the disease is, uh, in fact, very small. And we have patients now that are more than 10 years after epilimumab treatment and are still uh, in complete remission and doing uh, really, uh, really well. So it is, the question is, so do we know how, to long, uh, how, how, uh, how long we should treat? The answer is no. We need more information. It may differ from tumor type to tumor type. And I think it's a very urgent question to answer. And uh, I think that requires investigator-initiated studies. And in some countries, some of these studies are now ongoing. And then we come to the, the second question. Uh, in your opinion, which immunorelated adverse events, if any, uh, should preclude immunotherapy reinitiation or other immunotherapies in the future? Yeah, also, this is an important question that we often get during uh, educational meetings. Uh, so, how long should we, uh, or, or sh can we treat everybody with immunotherapy? And uh, if patients develop severe toxicities, can we reinitiate these, uh, these treatments? Again, there is. There's not so much data. Data is accumulating, though. Patients that may have, uh, maybe should not be treated with immunotherapy. I think there's a, a couple of categories. Um, so first, patients that have active autoimmune diseases, which can be autoimmune hepatitis, uh, Crohn's disease, and, and, uh, and others. So in that situation, you have to be aware that giving immunotherapy for a lethal disease, cancer in this case is a lethal disease. Most all of these patients will have metastatic uh, uh, form of cancer. Is it again, you know, should be a decision made between the patient and, and the doctor because um, there's always a chance that the patient will have an exacerbation of the autoimmune disease. Now, some of the immune diseases may be um, uh, worse than, than others. So, if patient has a very active uh, Crohn's disease or a very active autoimmune hepatitis, I would be very reluctant to give these patients uh, immune, uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors because of the fact that they uh, may have a severe um, uh, exacerbation of their uh, disease, which may be very difficult uh, uh, to treat. If patients have had autoimmune diseases, but they're now on very low doses of steroids or have no treatment at all, I think in that situation, you can uh, treat the patient with uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors, but you have to tell the patient that there is a uh, chance that they will have a recurrence of their autoimmune disease. So that is just to be aware of. And of course, if that happens, uh, that should be treated uh, accordingly. Patients that uh, have had a solid organ transplant is another group of patients uh, that we are very uh, reluctant to give um, uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors. Now, of course, it depends a little bit on the type of organ transplant. So patient with a heart transplant, lung transplant, liver transplant, it's very uh, risky to give um, this kind of treatment. We know that it is possible because patients have been treated, but there's also a fair chance of getting a graft rejection. And of course, in a situation where there is no backup system, like is the case, for instance, uh, for renal transplantation, 
where dialysis is a backup system that you could still use, um, uh, then of course the, this can be very severe and patients may die from the fact that they have a graft uh, rejection and cannot get another graft. So that is also something that needs to be taken into account and should be discussed with the patient. The data that we have so far, if you compare anti-CPLA4 with anti-PD-1 or anti-PD-O1, um, I think there are too scarce to, to make very firm conclusions, but it seems that anti-CPLA4 may be a little bit safer in this respect than anti-PD-1, and especially uh, in respect to anti-PD-L1 uh, drugs. So, so far what we know is that a, a, quite a, a proportion of patients that, that are treated with anti-PD-1 may develop graft rejection, I think, in the order of 40 to 50% of the patients, which is quite high. So that is something to keep in, uh, uh, in mind if you have a patient in front of you that has received an organ transplant. So then the, the next category, of course, are patients that have developed immune-related adverse events under immune checkpoint inhibition. So what should we do with these patients? Can we retreat these patients uh, with uh, the same drug or with another drug? Uh, that, of course, is something that is also important because we will see that uh, when we stop patients with, for instance, NTPD-1 after two years of treatment uh, and they have developed uh, uh, or they have developed severe toxicity uh, in that period of time, can we then retreat these patients uh, without any risk? There are some data on that, uh, also not uh, uh, so much data so, so far. Uh, yes, these patients can be retreated. Uh, uh, and yes, there is a chance that they will develop again autoimmune toxicity. Not necessarily the same, uh, but sometimes also uh, others. However, I would be very careful uh, in situations where we have seen grade four uh, immune-related toxicities, uh, because that is usually so severe that you don't want to expose patients again uh, to a life-threatening uh, situation. Uh, so in that respect, I would be very careful. Uh, the same also holds true for patients that develop, for instance, cardiac or neurological toxicity. That can also mm -hmm. be so severe that you really want to uh, not to, uh, to, to, to make the risk of putting these patients again on uh, one of these uh, checkpoint inhib inhibitors. So if your patient had had severe uh, immune-related toxicity, for instance, a grade three colitis on ipilimumab, can then, after a recurrence of the disease or disease progression, the patient be treated with NTPD-1? Well, there are data on that. We have, we have, we have also done that here on, in our clinic. Yes, that can, uh, that can be done, of course. You have to wait until there is a complete resolution of the uh, uh, immune-related adverse event. But if that is the case, I think there is uh, certainly the possibility to retreat the patient. Again, you have to inform the patient that the patient may develop the same or different autoimmune uh, toxicity uh, from that new treatment. So I think, yes, in, in, in general, it's possible to treat these kind of, uh, of patients, uh, but for the different categories, you really have to be, to be informed and also inform the patient carefully because I think this should be a, a, a shared decision. I agree. <laughs> what is your experience with patients that develop adverse events that do not respond to the immunosuppression referred in the guidelines? Yes, so also this is, I think, a very important question that needs to be addressed properly. Uh, again, there is very little data because uh, usually patients respond very well to high-dose steroids, which is uh, practically in all situations um, the first line of treatment of adverse events. 
the guidelines uh, sh uh, say that if there is no response to first-line uh, hydrosteroids, then escalation to either infliximab, depending on the type of uh, immunrelated adverse events, infliximab, for instance, for colitis or for pneumonitis, uh, can be given. And most of the times, you will have a good resolution of the, of the side effects. But not in all cases that happens. So sometimes the um, uh, colitis, for instance, uh, can be so severe that patients, even after uh, having repeated doses of infliximab, still uh, uh, have a, um, a severe colitis or recurrence of that colitis uh, occurring upon um, uh, tapering of the immune suppression. In that situation, you may have to escalate further. And of course, there are very little data on, on this. One can think of treating patients then with uh, mycophenolate, mofetil, or with tacrolimus, uh, or in, uh, for instance, even with uh, antithymocyte globulin. So really, uh, very strong T-cell suppressive treatments. Because there is so little experience within a lot of institutions with these kinds of drugs, because they're usually used in situations of organ transplantation, doctors are very hesitant to use them. I think in that situation, asking for information and contacting centers that are highly experienced and can help you out uh, is warranted because you want to treat these patients. Uh, you don't want to uh, perform a, for instance, colectomy on these patients if there are other options of uh, immunosuppression. And we have seen patients that have uh, that were very refractory to prednisone and also to uh, to infliximab with a, a severe colitis that did respond after. Uh, uh, treatment with tacrolimus. So in that situation, you really want to, uh, to benefit from the knowledge and experience of other, of other centers and not treat these patients with a total colectomy because that is a much worse situation than you would like to have. So my, my message is, um, if you have uh, no experience with escalating after, for instance, first line and second line immunosuppression, please contact one of the big centers in the world uh, for further support and advice. Thank you very much for your answers and for your opinions. I think it's a very interesting topic and I'm positive that uh, our colleagues will also find that a very interesting uh, talk and they will get a lot of information from that. Thank you, Professor Annen. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Absolutely, my fault. Also from my side. Bye-bye. <laughs>